Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everyone, Michael Adams here. Just before we get to today's show, I just have a few admin notes to get through. Firstly, uh, if you are a Facebook user and you haven't already joined our discussion group, RLD, Super League War Discussion, please go and join that. So uh, a great place to vent on anything we say, a lot of intelligent discussion about anything related to rugby league, not just the Super League War, run by a longtime friend of the show, Dave Hunter, who does a great job there. Uh, it's, a, as I said, one of the best places you can get involved with the discussion and keep it going. So please do join if you haven't already, RLD, the Super League War discussion. Secondly, this is long overdue, but I finally put uh, some references up on our website. So for each chapter that we've done on the Super League War, I intend to put up my full reference list. So at the moment, I've got Chapter 18, The World in Union, up there. I hope by the time you're listening to this, Chapter 19's references are up as well, and I plan to go back and get up to date over the next few weeks. That's at our website, theleaguedigest.com slash references. Thirdly, we uh, discussed in our bonus episode this week and in a subsequent post on Facebook and Twitter asking for your ideas for Rugby League 30 for 30s, we were overwhelmed with the responses. Some really great suggestions. So it merits a wrap-up segment uh, for Andrew and I to go through some of our favorites. So if you haven't given us your ideas, please let us know, rugbyleaguedigest at gmail.com. Go to those threads on Facebook and Twitter because, as I said, some brilliant suggestions already. Would love to hear your ideas too. So we will be putting that out as a little bonus episode on Monday. Uh, I mentioned that I was going to put out our History Corner on the 1985 Challenge Cup this week. I might hold off and put that out uh, together with our discussion on those 30 for 30 docs. So the good news there is you've got a few extra days to watch that game. Uh, if you haven't seen it before, I urge you to watch one of the best exhibitions of rugby league you'll ever see. So there's been a lot of group watching of old games over the last few weeks as we're dealing with this crippling lack of live football. You could do no better than spending a couple of hours watching the 1985 Challenge Cup final between Brett Kenny's Wigan and Peter Sterling's Hull. Incredible game. You'll get to hear the discussion Andrew and I had a couple of years ago about that game. So if you haven't seen it, you've got a few days to get up to speed and we'll be back with that bonus episode on Monday. And Chapter 20 of the Super League War will be released on the Wednesday. And with that, we'll go straight to this week's chapter. So enjoy. It was late in 1994, and South Sydney chairman George Piggins sat in Kerry Packard's Bellevue House with his Roosters counterpart Nick Politis in a meeting brokered by South football manager Alan Jones. With whispers of Super League growing louder and South's position both on-field and off increasingly precarious, a worried Piggins was prepared to consider any idea which might save the team he had spent most of his life fighting for. When the subject of a merger between the long-time rivals was broached, Piggins had one question, what role South would have in the running of such a venture? Politis was blunt in response. None. If the answer was unexpected, it was no less instructive in determining Piggins' battle plan. 
Souths would go it alone. This is George and the Juniors, the 19th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Mate, wonderful. How are you? Uh, very well. So this is Chapter 19. Uh, really, for the first time since a brief segment in our very first episode, are we talking about South at length? Uh, and really, it's the last time we'll really talk about them in any substance uh, until their removal and subsequent re-entry into the competition. I'm really excited about this one. I've been waiting for this one since we started it because this club is the poster club for the ARL. And it's such an important story and it's in the psyche of every rugby league fan. So I've been looking to cover this one since day dot. Let's just start there just to, to set up where Souths were at the time. Because, you know, maybe for some of our very young listeners, Souths are a successful club and, you know, they've been a glamour club for the last few years and are killing it in terms of membership. The presence they've got through... Russell Crowe and their on-field success uh, has really put them in a strong position. But it can't be overstated how underwhelming and uninspiring they were as a club at the time of Super League. Yeah, it was sad. It really was. And in our various talking points about any rationalisation or future directions of the game, we've always stressed that on-field success shouldn't be a major factor. But when all the other factors are against you, the geography, crowds, financial situation. Being bad on field is suddenly a big problem. When you're trying to scrape together every penny you can and then your crowds are 5,000, it's like, oh God. Yeah, exactly. And and so in, in the midst of the Super League era, at a time when Matthew Ridge was taking his duties as an ambassador of Super League extremely seriously, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he labelled South a disgrace and said, no club should be forced to play against South Sydney. <laughs> So obviously uh, some shit stirring from Matthew Ridge, but it was a very real feeling at the time that is it really worth, you know, saving South when they had been a basket case for the most part on field and off uh, since the early 70s, like right at the end of their last premiership run. They had 1989 and that was it. (laughs) So let's get into all of that. And we are going to start in the 70s. And South obviously won four out of five years from 67 through 71. Almost immediately, as soon as that last premiership, it all fell apart. So 1972 was the first year since 1948 that didn't feature Souths or St. George in a grand final, which is a pretty remarkable fact in itself. Can you imagine how boring that would have been for the rugby league fan back then? Yeah, yeah. I know you're a St. George man, but I mean, every year the same two teams, you'd be like, come on. And South's success in that five-year period was built on the basis of a core of all-time greats, but wasn't matched with the management to build on that success. And so the financial problems were starting in the midst of that run. And you could see, if you read any of the old uh, South Blokes biographies, there's a lot of disharmony or disillusionment with the management at the time and a real kind of us-versus-them thing forming with the players. Then at the end of 1971, you had people like, you know, John O'Neill, Ron Coote, Ray Brannigan, all these people starting to leave. And this dynastic team fell apart and all these financial troubles were being exposed. Jack Gibson couldn't be more right that you got to get your front office in order first. Yeah, yeah. And they'd fallen so far from that mantra that in 1973, their league's club 
uh, was forced to close after putting them on the verge of bankruptcy. South Sydney great Mike Cleary uh, came in to uh, try to save South, a movement called Save Our South. And one of the first thing they did was to take a look at the books of the Leagues Club. And when you take a look at the books of an organisation and the first thing you do is call up the head of the New South Wales Police Consorting Squad... <laughs> <laughs> It's a sign that things aren't going great. I want to say two things about this. A, is Mike Cleary the biggest winner in the history of rugby league off the field? Just total winner. Yeah, he's done politics, lawyer. Yeah, he's he's done it all, basically. But calling the New South Wales Police Consorting Squad in the 1970s, like, is that the best idea? Either? I'd like to put you through to our boss, Arthur Nettie Smith. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the issues there would be exposed in later years. Uh, but at the time, the look into the books, I'll, I'll just read it in Mike Cleary's words. This comes from John Sattler's book, Glory, Glory. The truth is thousands of dollars simply disappeared and were never accounted for. The committee were taking bucket loads of money out. There was one committee man gambling like you wouldn't believe. There were all sorts of people in on the rot, and it sent the league's club broke. Uh, and he goes on from there. Even the poker machine technicians were in on the rot. They'd come into the leagues club with grease at the bottom of their toolboxes. As they'd work on the machine, they'd swipe the money and dump it into the boxes, and the grease would stop the rattling sound of coins. The counting of money in those days was done by buckets. The operators would come by with a trolley and deliver it upstairs for official counting. We had no idea exactly how much was coming out of the machines. South Leagues was being robbed blind. Now... The irony of that, I mean, once again, all roads in rugby league lead back to gambling, but the idea that they're stealing from the vulnerable to steal for themselves to gamble with, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's insane. So major problems there. As I said, the club closed in 1973, uh, and it was only the dedication of people like Mike Cleary that got it up and running again. Uh, he had a very simple plan to get South back on track. And again, from that same book, John Sattler, Glory, Glory. The year it closed down, the club lost $260,000. When I got it open, we made 160000 profit in six months. People asked me how I did it. I said, simple, I banked the money. <laughs> I've got to say, like, we're always hinting at it about why rugby league clubs are broke, but is it just the expense account and the long lunch and the, and the rort that brings these clubs down even today i mean definitely the the rorts have happened it seems to be maybe we're only exposed to a few of them there's always these grand schemes this we're gonna hold off on giving the money here because we're gonna you know do this refurb or we're investing in this this venture um, we could see it later in the 70s south almost going broke again because of a ill-fated investment they made uh st george actually were involved in that same investment and lost a million dollars on it so <laughs> What about a rule like for NRL licenses? No outside building speculation. Yeah. <laughs> and the irony is that Cleary himself in saving Souths at one point risked getting a jail term himself because of the way uh, he was operating the program. So he was accepting debentures, basically borrowing money as an unsecured loan. And so they raised, you know, a quarter of a million dollars through this way. When someone involved in politics rang up Cleary to say that there was no prospectus issued and therefore what he was doing was illegal. So they had to, you know, frantically reshape the debentures to make them loans so it was all above board. So uh, there's a lot of the blind leading the blind. <laughs> Thank God he uh, got the call. This financial mismanagement led to South not being able to retain some of their top players. I mentioned some of those names at the start, and if you think back to our John Sattler's Jaw History Corner, 
John O'Neill, when he announced he was going to Manly, broke it to Sattler, who responded, but they're the bastards who broke my jaw. <laughs> uh, so the rest of the 70s is a pretty dire period in South's on-field history. Uh, they got the wooden spoon in 1975, the first one of those they'd received for 30 years. That also saw the end of the Clive Churchill era as coach. And the rest of the 70s progressed in that pretty poor manner. So not even Jack Gibson coming in as coach for 78 and 79 could turn it around. They went back to the semifinals under Bill Anderson in 1980, but it was a pretty underwhelming time on field and off for South Sydney. And so at the same time that this was happening, you had South's juniors going through their own problems, but in the process of becoming a powerhouse and being far and away the most successful financial entity of the two clubs. So as it's crucial to our story, I wanted to go into the rise of the juniors and the problems they had along the way as well. So we can, you know, link it all back together. Can I just say, it makes me sick how they get praised about this masterful organization. How can you not make money running a gambling den? The fact that people don't make money with giant poker machine clubs is incredible. Like It should be a guarantee. I agree with you. And we've got a lot more talk on that coming up. So the juniors got their license in 1959. So pokies and and licensed clubs in New South Wales really begins in 1956. Uh, And it was at that point that you're seeing, you know, the St. George Leagues Club and a new era of footy clubs being able to basically build their fortunes on the back of leagues clubs. And there's an important piece of social history waiting to be written on the development of the club movement in New South Wales. Uh, We're not doing that here. If there isn't an academic looking for some extra projects, please write this because I've looked everywhere for a comprehensive overview and it doesn't look like it's been written yet. Uh, But a fascinating story. And you're right. It's always trying to create this moral virtue out of these clubs as community organizations by, you know, taking money from the vulnerable. We gave five million to the charities. Yeah, but you took in 75 million in revenue. (laughs) Yeah. So South's boss at this time in the late 50s through uh, most of the 60s was a man named George Wintle, who seems like a real character. So Ian Heads wrote the history of South's juniors, uh, simply called the juniors. And George Wintle is, you know, a heavy presence in that. And this is him talking about poker machines. Right at the start, we bought poker machines. I used to even have them positioned on the dance floor so they could play them out there on the floor. We used to wheel the machines out onto the floor at certain times and call out the names of members. If your name was called out, you'd get five free pulls on the machine. And another man that worked there said that the dancers would be going on and George Winter would stop the music and say, machine number 39's not being played. Is that like Studio 54 or what a disgusting, (laughs) absolute disgusting time in history? (laughs) (laughs) It really is. And you're so right that leaving inside the morality of it all, if that is your business, you have no right to not succeed at it. So it's unbelievable in this era that clubs were going broke or all these scandals were coming out of various clubs. There's no other explanation other than money being taken because the machines are set over a period of time to return a certain amount. So, I mean, your income's pretty much guaranteed just due to the law of averages. Yeah, exactly. So George Wintle was eventually forced out at South Juniors, put some noses out of joint as rugby league men are wont to do. Uh, One columnist (laughs) talking about uh, George Wintle called him the Bradman of big noting. (laughs) What a great call. (laughs) In rugby league, what's number one, what's number two? Is lariness number one in the hated traits or is big noting? 
They seem to go hand in hand, don't they? I think they do. You're right. <laughs> yeah. That big noting eventually led to his downfall. He was replaced by a new management team uh, featuring a man named Wally Dean, who at the time was the youngest alderman, I guess it must have been Randwick Council. Uh, so Wally Dean and one Darcy Lawler. Fair income. So Darcy Lawler, Lawler, of course, at this stage was only a few years removed from that famous 1963 grand final. Go back and listen to our interview with Noel Kelly if you want to hear more about that. Uh, so Henry Morris, who you'll hear later in the episode, he was at the helm of South Juniors in the 90s, but had had a long association with the club beforehand. And he gave a little insight into Darcy Lawler's character uh, and his running of the club. You know how it's been a running theme anytime we've talked about leagues clubs, this disconnect between a league club set up to fund a football club and seeing it as almost a burden to have to support football operations. Yeah, absolutely. Henry Morris's comments on Darcy Lawler are quite instructive in that. Funnily enough, considering his background, he didn't have a great love of the role that football took in the club. He was never a great supporter of us supporting football. You have no idea how Darcy used to hate going to the footy meetings. I genuinely think he got to hate football. He certainly didn't want any money spent on it. Bloody hell. His reputation gets worse and worse, does it not? (laughs) (laughs) And so it was in this Darcy Lawler era that South's juniors got into some trouble themselves and if you don't want the consorting squad being brought in to help you with the books you equally don't want to be the subject of a royal commission (laughs) which is (laughs) which is the position that south juniors found themselves in in the mid-70s the moffat royal commission into the links between organized crime and clubs in new south wales the old school aussie crook they're always based in that area botany alexandria La Perouse, Maroubra type era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's funny because I know like the Cauliflower Hotel was a, a favourite haunt of Nettie Smith & Co. It was also at one point ran by Harry Bath and was a, a meeting place for all the old players. So you wonder like if there are any, you know, of them running into each other at the time. Well, it's the same thing as now with, you know, different groups and, and players and mm. whispers in the media. It's hard to say no to these guys. They want to hang out and rub shoulders with you. It's like, well, you can't just say piss off because <laughs> they're not guys that hear no very often. Yeah. So the revelations that came out from this Royal Commission caused uh, the juniors to lose their license for a time. It ended with Wally Dean being, you know, booted from his position. So the Royal Commission on Dean said that some of his activities can be said to have organized plundering of clubs by improper and apparently criminal means so this involved a lot of you know the kickbacks hiring cleaning companies that he either ran or had an interest in so in the 70s south juniors ran a wrestling night they discontinued the contract with their wrestling promoters wally dean bought a wrestling ring and hired it to the club at 60 bucks a week and then eventually sold the ring to the club. So all these like little minor rorts just <laughs> seem to be. The- <laughs> I think the inflated or false uh, contract for uh, you know, maintenance or whatever would be a deep rugby league tradition. Yeah, I mean, you see it right through to the Melbourne salary cap scandal with the marquees. Yeah, yeah. So as I said, Wally Dean was ousted from his position. Darcy Lawler managed to survive and actually stayed at South Juniors till not long before his death in the mid-90s. So was there any accusations against him? Accusations, but in our Kevin Ryan interview, when we asked him about Darcy Lawler and his opinion on the 63 grand final, uh, obviously coming from the other side that Noel Kelly was, he 
alluded to the fact that South Juniors were found to be corrupt and he was at the head of South Juniors, but it doesn't look like anything stuck with Darcy Lawler. So uh, make of that what you will. It seems like a odd choice. You want to talk about bad looks in rugby league <laughs> with all the whispers about the grand final and then you put him on your, your gambling board. Mm. It has to be said that there are a lot of people who defended Darcy Lawler and talked about him as being not only a very good referee, but a fair referee and someone of whom the rumours were baseless. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of optics, yeah. to use a NFL term. Yeah. <laughs> so he did survive. And in the process, Souths, uh, the juniors eventually got their license back and entered the 90s and went through the 90s as a real powerhouse. So... It's also worth noting that we glamorize some guys, like go back to our bullfrog episodes, where what a larrikin, he'd have a long lunch on the company's dime, you know, ha, ha, ha. And then we demonize others when really it's <laughs> similar. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny how much of that comes down to success. Yeah. So I know South Juniors and South Seniors are separate entities, and we'll spend the back end of this episode talking about that relationship, but... Success seems to paper the cracks in so many of these things. But this is the point where we're going to bring those two clubs together uh, and look at that relationship, or rather their contrasting fortunes. So at this point, we're going to really introduce George Piggins to the story. So through all of this, George Piggins had been there every step of the way, basically. So he was playing at South until the late 70s. He was you know, one of the last survivors of that golden era. Subsequently comes in as a coach in the mid-80s, turns their fortunes around drastically, gets them into the semifinals almost every year that he coached there, won two Coach of the Year awards in the time, then takes over as an administrator and makes a lot of changes. That's probably his legacy now is his role as the boss of Souths. Yeah. So just to start this, I wanted to talk a bit about Piggins the man, his principles, his values, and the way his career kind of mirrored or reflected those values. So I'll let John Sattler start the story. I knew the day I met George Piggins that I'd come across someone special. If there's a more honest and trustworthy man than George on the planet, I've not met him. But I also quickly came to learn that there was no one more committed to a worthwhile cause. As I discovered on the field, George played with an unmatched spirit. And if you picked a fight with him, you were a fool, for it was only a matter of time before the terrier in Piggins wore you down. He's a man's man. There's no other way to describe it. I told you previously off air, I used to live in Coogee and he lived in Coogee. And I'd see him down in the post office and down the street. And he's just got this hard man look about him. Just his face is just like, it's resting tough guy face, I'd describe it as. Yeah, yeah. The image I always get of him is actually not of him. But when I was uh, living in Cobart, Nick Kosef country, there was another guy named George. And he was about 60 years old at the time. Worked for the council, like a road gang kind of thing. I walked down the street, street one time and I saw George. He was on this jackhammer and it was, you know, pounding into the rocks. And he's just there, this nuggety little, like, carved out of granite, leathery appearance. And he's just immovable. Right. <laughs> and for some reason, that that is what I think of with George Piggins. <laughs> yeah. His book, to me, is one of the most honest biographies of all time. And it's called Never Say Die. Yeah. And... The story about him going on the kangaroo tour and the players behaving like animals and like, you know, cat calling and abusing some young woman and him telling them all to pull their heads in. How'd you feel if it was your daughter and that sort of thing? And real stand up guy. And, and they, they all had their shits with him and wanted to bash him, but he didn't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that goes all the way through. So when he was starting as a player, so this was in 
1965, uh, he wanted a bit more money than what South were offering him. So they offered him £300 for the whole season. He asked for 1000 and they said no. So George Peggins said, okay, well, I'll just go back to Mascot and play with my mates. And they said, no, you're either playing with us or nobody. And he said, nobody is then, and just walked away <laughs> until they eventually came back and gave him the 1000 God, But just the fact that he's just willing to you know, not play on that principle. It's amazing he still has his nose because he's cut it off a number of times despite his face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'll say at this point, that book, Never Say Die, is our book of the week. Yeah, an incredible account of his story, particularly as it relates to you know South in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. I do think it reveals a few character flaws and... And inconsistencies in Definitely. those principles, which we'll get to. But the other interesting thing about it is the fact that he's this, you know, self-made man, this guy who started on the wharves, eventually, you know, got into trucking, sold a trucking business, came up with a patent that he sold to TNT. Yeah, amazing. Retired at 40, a millionaire. So a very savvy businessman on top of just being this unwavering terrier as uh, Sattler calls him on the field. You'd have to put him in the top 10 legendary figures in the game. I uh, certainly did it all at every level, but then there was also this, he seemed to get them so far and I'm not saying it's his fault, but you look at his coaching run, turns them around, gets them to the semifinals, minor premiers in 89, they you know bow out in straight sets, then go on to be wooden spooners in 1990. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, so actually the second team in league history to do that. I reached out to a friend of the show, Andrew Ferguson, for this, uh, and he told me that West's in 1952 and 1953 did the same, uh, and West also did that in reverse, wooden spooners in 33 and winning the comp in 34. So a hard feat to achieve. Just on his legacy in the game, it's like you can't tell the story of rugby league without him. No, certainly not. But that 89 South teams, that's one of my favourite teams. Me too. They were so good to watch. I like fell in love with Phil Blake during that season. And I think he'd already had a reputation of being kind of mercurial. You know, he flamed out with Manly in the end after a killer start where everyone would have thought he would have, at the very least, played for Australia. I mean, mercurial is like one of the ultimate rugby league tropes, but it fits nobody better than Phil Blake. Yeah. And so that 1990 season where it all fell apart, it saw Piggins leave his role as coach and go on with the business of trying to rescue South financially. But this was also the start of a really bad run on the field where they'd finish no better than ninth for the rest of the decade. They'd lose all their best players either that year or in the couple of years after. The Nadir maybe late in 1990 where they drew a home crowd of under 4,000, had Mario Fennick, Les Davidson and Craig Coleman uh, hooked, you know, the crowd erupting in booze. You can't have a crowd under 4,000. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so that team fell apart as a result, partially, of more financial issues where South just didn't have the means to compete with the other teams. And again, they entered the 90s in a very precarious position with a real worry about how or if they were going to survive to the next century. I think the only success they had in that period was the pre-season cup victory over Brisbane. Yeah, which we talked about in our first episode, which was a great achievement for what it was, but ultimately meaningless. <laughs> yeah. And so when Piggins took over as chairman, he took a look at the position South were in and realized that unless they could get the Leagues Club right and increase the profitability of that and have some more money to fund the football operations, they weren't going to be in a position to compete. And that meant in the short term, it's kind of a paradox, but in the short term, not putting anything into the football club in the hopes of building up the Leagues Club, that it could be something 
profitable and sustainable for long-term success. Isn't that just despicable? That paradox you described is the most despicable thing about the game. Exactly. And you can see there where clubs get into trouble and, and what we've talked about with this refusing to grant money for the football club. Like with George Piggins, you know that that was the sole motivation. And if it meant three years of not kicking in to the football club and seeing good players go with the aim of being in a better position long-term, you know that he would have eventually got back to that goal and started giving more money to the football club. But you can see with people who are maybe less football-minded going, oh, we can't really give the grant this year because we're, we're refurbing the games room. We could fit 25 extra machines in here. Yeah, yeah. And that's just becoming this endless, you know. There's a huge plastic monstrosity we need to build. Um, sorry, footballs. Yeah. <laughs> and so as a business plan, it's actually not a bad strategy. And if you're willing to handle the three or four years of mediocrity it would bring, as Pigan seemed willing to, it could have actually worked. The problem is it was the worst possible timing <laughs> to do this in the wake of everything coming with Super League. Yeah, absolutely. It's a sound strategy with terrible timing. And not only was that in terms of Super League, but in terms of the political situation that was playing out. And that's with the decision by the New South Wales State Labor Government to allow poker machines into pubs. Animale. So this became a big talking point from about 94 or so onwards, eventually came into law in 1997. So George Piggins in his book says, The great tragedy is just when we're getting on top of it. Bob Carr's New South Wales Government changed the law to allow hotels to have poker machines. And yes, that has had a demonstratedly bad effect on society, but... This is where Piggins' book really started to test me. And you could see a real inconsistency in this, this principled man. I'll just read this quote. Within the Leagues Club framework, when I was involved there, it used to worry me greatly to see pensioners coming in and losing their money. It was immoral, I believe, for us to be continually taking it from them. They weren't there out of the sheer enjoyment of playing the machines. They were there daily with the dream of winning. And the machines are set up so that you can't win, not in the long term anyway. At least within the club framework, I thought there was a chance of doing something about it. And I tried to set up a point system under which people who came in and by choice played the machines and lost their money could get to eat in the club for nothing. Under the scheme, people who played the machines would be graded as A members. After all, they were the ones supporting the club by playing the machines. It didn't happen, but such a system can at least be applied in leagues clubs. It will never happen in pubs. Again, this phony pretense that they're helping people. Like, Americans look at us with pokies the way we look at Americans with guns. You guys are insane. They're on every corner. Like, What are you doing? Like The damage they're causing. And, yeah. But the logic for both sides is the same. Like the Americans are like, well, I need guns because everyone else has got a gun. I need to protect myself. So that kind of works in a fucked up way. Yeah. The clubs are like, we need these vulnerable coming in because we need to pay charities that help the vulnerable. Like Yeah, exactly. And talking about these schemes that were later outlawed because of the way they propagated gambling problems as some benevolent, you know, act of altruism. You know, we'll, we'll give you a free meal because you've just, you know. Yeah, spent two grand. As a former degenerate gambler, I can tell you there's nothing better than a $2,000, $8 stake. <laughs> the, the saddest thing about this for me with George Piggins is in his book, there's like the horrible story of his uh, older brother committing suicide due to gambling addiction. Mm. And now he, he's put in a position to either save his club, which he loves with all his heart, but any way to do that is via gambling. It's horrible. And you can see, and I don't want to be too critical of George Piggins here because. What George Piggins wanted to do was save Souths, and that was his sole focus. And you could see him putting his principles aside at certain points 
for this you know, narrow focus of saving his club. And that came in when all this was happening as he was so anti-pubs being allowed to have poker machines, outspoken about it, talking about how it was a moral issue and it was going to lead to all these problems in society. But then he actually went about trying to buy up every pub in the South Sydney area <laughs> to get in on the action. Uh, his quote was, I went to Henry Morris with a proposal that the juniors buy up every hotel in the district. Do that and we'll become the greatest football club in the world, I told him. It would have been smart because pubs were cheap back then before the pokies. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously hypocritical. There's no other way to say it, but we're all part of the same hypocrisy. Like I do comedy gigs in pubs and clubs because where else am I going to do them, even though I despise the gambling. Yeah, and I mean that comes down to... Pigan's frustration at trying to live within his means when other clubs weren't doing that and losing players and you know falling down the ladder as a result of it. So again, it's a system that was in place that he had no choice but to go along with uh, for what he wanted to do with the club. As much as we're criticizing him, I do sympathize with George Pigan's in his frustrations that South were trying to live within their means and getting overtaken by clubs who weren't. So it's understandable this desperation to keep up by any means possible. So again, it's not so much him as an individual. It's this system that is in place that I don't know how we get ourselves out of. We're still not out of it 25 years later. Yeah, it'll take 50 years to get out of it. Yeah. But so in this respect, Souths and South Juniors were outspoken critics of what the Labor government was doing and really went hard at trying to stop Pokies being introduced into pubs. So Henry Morris in his president's report said, make no mistake, we're currently faced with the greatest crisis since the inception of our industry when we were allowed to use poker machines. Uh, went on to say that the state government showed no appreciation or understanding of the club industry or of the financial support given to sporting welfare and community groups by clubs. So this same hypocrisy that you've spoken about, we're funding the community. <laughs> I'm also funding a Ford LTD lease for myself, a uh, an office in Park Street. Um, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and one of the real ugly things about it is you had at the time these two competing organisations, Clubs New South Wales and the Australian Hotels Association, lobbying little pot shots at each other and making very valid points, but them both being these despicable. <laughs> Be like watching a cobra fight a brown snake. Yeah. So they were equally morally reprehensible, but they were making all these valid points. So the AHA was talking about club operations and how as much as they were talking about supporting the community, they were also like running these little monopolies of the community, like running businesses like, you know, bus companies, hotels, fast food restaurants, and even their own pubs. It's insane. And it, it got to the stage where George Piggins threatened to run as an independent in Maroubra against Bob Carr, running on a single-issue platform of standing against increases in poker machine taxes. Bob Carr skates on this issue so easily. It's quite sickening. I mean, it probably would happen eventually. but And you had like politicians in the government at the time with interest in different hotels. And we're not telling this story, but it's, yeah, it is quite sickening. And this doesn't start or end with that particular government, but this is certainly like an ugly manifestation of those, you know, wheels of influence. But of course, poker machines did eventually come into force in pubs. That happened in 1997. Just when I turned 18. Thanks very much. 
The AHA, of course, were very responsible about the way they handled it. They said, we're telling our hoteliers to proceed with great caution because it's a minefield of respecting people's rights and at the same time trying to protect them. So very invested in, uh, you know, how society was going to handle this change. And, you know, it's a massive success. They they really, (laughs) you know, did that well, didn't they? So the Telegraph in April 1997 reported on the introduction of poker machines. Uh, So the Union Hotel in Newtown, a venue I've spent a lot of time in, was one of the first pubs in New South Wales to get poker machines. Uh, And I'll just read this from the Telegraph. Shortly after 2pm yesterday, Kelwood walked into his Union Hotel, looked around the Las Vegas lounge and smiled. I'm thrilled to bits, the veteran publican said. At the Union, business was booming for what normally would be a quiet Tuesday afternoon. We wouldn't have a husband and wife sitting there like that, Mr. Wood said, pointing to an unfamiliar elderly couple in front of a poker machine. It's obvious that people want it. So this is the climate that South found themselves in entering the Super League war. They were frantically trying to keep their heads above water as all these machinations of rugby league administration were coming at the same time as a change to the club movement, which was going to have real ramifications for them. Uh, And so as a result, they were very vulnerable to Super League. So let's get into the Super League war. So George Piggins made it clear from the start that he was uh, morally opposed to Super League. That moral standpoint was made clearer by the fact that it was obvious Super League wanted nothing to do with South. It was a match made in heaven, that uh, (laughs) decision. (laughs) So he, in his book, he came up with a, a number of solutions that the way it could have gone. This was one of them. A 12-team city New South Wales competition based on all the traditional local derbies and feuds could have been quite comfortably kept going. And if there was this great push for the national competition, that too could have been done. For example, East South Balmain could have owned the city side and the national competition could have been played on a Wednesday night or even a Friday night so as not to interfere with the nuts and bolts premiership competition. <laughs> so Pegan's idea, basically go to News Limited and say, hey, do you remember the Panasonic Cup? <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. And so in his book, he spoke about the fact that in many ways, uh, Super League saved South with the cash injection they got from Optus. Uh, and he said, I believe that Optus showed itself to be a company possessing principles and the old quality of loyalty in the way it supported the traditional game so resolutely. Although I recognize that its business rights came first. Again, with this ARL praise of Optus in terms of loyalty. Yeah, no. Like, how is their loyalty to the ARL any different to what Foxtel was doing on the other side? Like, any different at all? At all. But so that was obviously a big thing. Let's call it the Piggins way was the idea of loyalty. And you could see that in those initial planning stages where John Quayle asked Piggins about, you know, Super League and, and where South would stand. And Piggins said, I'll be as loyal to you as you will to us. Legendary quote. Yeah. But so Piggins was one of those Sydney administrators who saw that five-year loyalty agreement not as a chance to get their act together and look at the future, but something to cling to at all costs. So our next chapter is going to be on the aborted merger between East and St. George. And so in the midst of that, George Piggins was interviewed by Paul Kent for the Sun-Herald and the article said, the mergers being bandied around like that between St. George and the Roosters baffle Piggins. The way he sees it, the loyalty agreements give every club five years, at least. Well, that makes sense business-wise, but yeah, you're right. It would have been a good time to get your act together, but like they were in such a bad position, you know, that's all they could do, really, was hang on. Yeah, and I mean, you saw it in my opening monologue, a merger between 
East and Souths was going to give Souths no say in the running. So the way Piggins puts it, the team was going to be known as the Eastern Suburbs Roosters, was going to play in red, white, and blue, and be based at the Sydney Football Stadium. Not, not much of a merger then, is it? No, exactly. And and I mean, when you look at those two squads, you can't even see many Souths players actually being a part of that merge team going into 1996 or whenever a potential merger would have started. So as a Souths man and as someone who has a duty to protect his club, I think Piggins was right to not entertain any merger ideas coming from eastern suburbs. I mean, the only way it potentially could have worked was a completely new entity. I think the idea with the city thing was the smart option. Yeah, yeah. But I think you kind of got to take the Roosters and the Rabbitohs out of it. You've got to take the Red, White and Blue, the Cardinal and Myrtle out of it. And the only way that would have worked is as a new entity. I'm such a proponent of a relocation, like South Melbourne to the Swans. Yeah. Just keep the club, keep the colours. Yep. Adelaide Rabbitohs and the Perth Roosters or something like that would have been so yeah. much better. So in the face of this, and you know, obviously at the time and afterwards, there was talk of a inner city super club. There was an option of South and Cronulla merging. But in the face of that, the only real option was to stand alone. So that was the path that South took. But because they weren't in a position to stand alone, they had to approach the situation with both hands out. Uh, and so Piggins as chairman basically did that to anyone he could find. So Kerry Packer was the first of those. So at that meeting I mentioned in the monologue at Kerry Packer's house, Packer actually, as an aside, went up to Piggins and told him he was a South supporter. And Piggins said to him, well, how come you haven't helped us? And Packer said, I've never been asked. And Piggins said, well, consider yourself asked. (laughs) Another legendary quote. Yeah. And I love the fact that Packer said, you know, how much do you want? And Piggins immediately said like $2 million, you know, like has the figure ready, isn't afraid to, you know, go to the most powerful man in Australia and say, give me this. Packer actually said that he'd give him $750,000. But as he puts it, $750,000 is a lot of cash, but in reality, he'd given me a pop gun to fight some bloke wielding a machine gun. It helped keep us alive no more, which is fair enough. But then again, it comes back to this entitlement. His next line is, what South needed was a steady $5 million a year from a leagues club, i.e. the juniors. So like not your own failing leagues club, you know, you're just entitled to this $5 million from a separate organization. I think the juniors would have been well advised to change their name to Kensington Gambling Club or something, right? And just yeah. get yeah, any yeah, idea yeah. of football out of their name and no one would be harassing them. Yeah. And so Pegan's actually was out in public quite often talking about how the juniors needed to give him money. So uh, this comes from the book, The Juniors. Ian Heads quotes a number of newspaper articles with George Piggins. So this came from The Messenger. South juniors not assisting us is the only way they can get rid of us. Come on, Henry. You have an obligation to the people of this district. The future of the South Sydney club is in your hands. Well, his Achilles heel is perceived arrogance and pig-headedness, right? Like- yeah, and so obviously the juniors became the big focus of South's fight for survival, but George Pickens was willing to go for anyone's money. So this is another great quote from the book. I did a survey of pubs in our area and wrote letters to them all, asking if they'd assist us in the South fight. I didn't get a single answer of support back. They'd been quite happy to have people in their pubs over the years watching Souths on TV, but not one of them <laughs> said, we'll give you something, George. Not one. Yeah. It's so funny, like, the book is actually full of these quotes. Like, he comes across quite whiny about it in parts, and it's just so at odds with this 
you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, pig's ass, I'm going to work kind of mentality. It's like he believes in the club so much that I think it blinds him. Yeah, yeah. That moral resoluteness, I think, blinds him as well. He sees this as the right thing. Therefore, any action that deviates from that is is the wrong thing. So South deserves to stay in the competition. Therefore, South Juniors not giving us $5 million a year is the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And it also speaks of his belief in the inherent right of South to exist as their own entity, that when he was asked of any amalgamations, his attitude was that they should amalgamate with South Juniors, as if that was a real amalgamation in terms of everything that was going on. <laughs> you guys are uh, riding high pillage in the community. Do you want to take on a uh, giant basket case? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that became the focus of George Piggins's push from then on was to merge uh, Souths and South Juniors and in the process ensure the survival of Souths. It's funny you mention that because I remember reading in the paper as like a teenager about that idea and thinking, yeah, that's a great idea. Like the <laughs> paper's narrative was pushing it, obviously, and my pea brain was going, yeah, they should merge. I was the same because I was like, yeah, I mean, they're just the juniors, so they should merge with the seniors and, and just be one club, which still to this day makes a lot of sense. But for me now, it's the idea that that could have been enough. It's okay to think that when you don't understand what licensed clubs are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but this push was almost over before it started with an early possibility that South Juniors would go to Super League independent of Souths. So this didn't get very far, but in August of 1995, Henry Morris revealed that the South Juniors board made a resolution to speak to Super League just to see what the position was. <laughs> so what are they going to field a team of uh, aristocrat bogey? <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that didn't get off the ground, but in a way it shows you how far the two organisations were from each other. You know, there, there were philosophical differences that were always going to make it hard for the two to, to merge as natural as a fit as it might seem from the outside. So Piggins was increasingly vocal in public, talking about it as South's only option for survival, and came to the juniors with a very generous deal, which it would have essentially been a takeover. So very similar to the deal that Politis offered Souths, with the key difference that the identity of South Sydney would remain. George Piggins was fully prepared to walk away from his position, have no future involvement in the club, if he could get this deal over the line and have South Juniors come in to rescue the club. I think that was so selfless. And it proved to me that he wasn't about, you know, it wasn't all about him running the thing in power and thought that was very admirable. Yeah, that side of it is definitely very admirable. But again, it's this entitled attitude about how the juniors just should have done this. You know, they needed to come in and save us. So in one quote, he said, all Henry Morris and his board had to do back in May 1996 was nod, but they couldn't bring themselves to do it. <laughs> You know, it's like all this successful organization has to do is come in and buy our basket case organization, but they just <laughs> wouldn't do it. Yeah. And so South's juniors were reticent to take this on for those reasons. And also because that just wasn't their charter. So the other thing Piggins was asking them to do was to turn their back on the charter and let's leave all the morality of poker machines out of it. What South juniors was set up to do was promote, fund, you know, run and, and develop junior football in the South Sydney area. So any takeover would mean a fundamental shift in the aims of the club. So that's no easy decision to make and no easy thing to just walk away from. And so there was an idea coming from South that 
juniors owed Souths because in 1959 they didn't stop them from obtaining their licenses. There's a very big theme of entitlement that you've highlighted here. Yeah. And so in the midst of all of this, the fight got pretty ugly. So Piggins sniping at Morris in public, Morris coming back at Piggins. At one point, Morris said, instead of looking at the performance of our club, you should be looking at your own. Their own licensed club can't give them any money, yet they want to come and get three or four million out of us every year. I know what would happen if we did it. Our members would rebel. Yeah, it's insane. So this played out not only in 1995, but throughout the war, basically. And it wasn't until 1998 that there was any kind of resolution or an agreement that was suitable for both parties. So, And that came even in July 98. There was talk that South Juniors were going to pull all funding from seniors as of 1999. Eventually, they made a deal so that wouldn't happen. And then once Souths did get excluded from the competition, which is obviously a later point in our story, we're not going to go into that history now. Suddenly, the fight became very different and both parties realized that, you know, the squabbling between them wasn't really going to help either club going forward and they had a bigger battle to wage. All they're thinking at juniors is, oh, we need this team in the comp just so we can get a few more extra dollars coming in by rub of association. Yeah, and I think that's fair enough. You know, like, despite this at times tense relationship, the idea was always that junior South players would, you know, eventually fill the seniors teams. And they're a club that has always taken so much pride in that junior development. Uh, to this day, I don't think there's any club that is more celebratory of their juniors. Yeah. So I don't want to go too heavy on the downfall of Piggins because that's kind of the conclusion of our Super League story as a whole. But as it relates to the juniors, I, I loved a story I read during the week of after South won the comp in 2014. Actually, mine, it was before they won the comp, but George Piggins was interviewed and he talked about how at an event, Adam Reynolds and Jason Clark both came up to him and, and just said how appreciative they were and how much it meant for them to play for South and how they wouldn't be standing in that jersey if it weren't for George Piggins. That's beautiful. So for all our cynicism and for all the questionable morality of it all, there's still a lot to admire about the whole thing. Without going into the future episodes, the guy is synonymous with South. He's a living legend of the game. He goes down in folklore. You can't tell the story of Rugby League without him. Good, bad and the ugly, he's George Piggins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's all wrapped up together. Uh, So that is where we leave this chapter. As I said, Never Say Die, George Piggins is one of our book recommendations. I'm going to throw in a second one. The aforementioned Ian Heads, the juniors are the best of the best. I wish every club had a history written about their leagues club, or in this case, their junior leagues club. Uh, But one of those books that is so useful because of how rare it is to get that kind of comprehensive history. So uh, definitely for any South fans, at least track that book down. Again, as always, please uh, tell us what you think of of this episode, therugbyleaguedigest at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Please, uh, if you have the time, give us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast provider. I think we should just say give us a review. We don't want to force the (laughs) five-star. Give us an honest review. No, no, no. I'm forcing the five-star on this issue. (laughs) if if it's four stars or below tell us in an email (laughs) okay so on that note uh, we will speak to you next week bye bye